This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. This week, our special guest is the famous Dr. Oz. He has been America's doctor for decades now, dispensing advice, giving you tips on how to lead a healthier life. We're in the new year. How do you keep your New Year's resolution? Well, Dr. Oz has you covered, and I think you're going to be very excited by his observations about his own personal life, his spiritual journey, his medical journey, and his advice on how to live a happier and healthier new year. But first, what's ahead? Obviously, the big story bursting is Iran. So what's ahead in that boiling, roiling part of the world? It's going to change minute by minute, but expect a lot of fireworks before this crisis subsides. Neither side wants a war, but will they drift into one? That's going to be the big question. I think the answer is no, but expect more fireworks, which has already sent the price of oil up which makes this week's petroleum report on inventories so critical. That comes out on Wednesday. Also on Wednesday, getting back to the domestic economy, ADP will release its national employment report that usually dovetails with the employment report coming from the Labor Department shortly thereafter. This will be a good peak. Usually it's pretty accurate on what lies ahead with that number. We'll also get earlier in the week on Tuesday The ISM non-manufacturing report, that's a report of purchasing managers. It's a good indication. How is the non-manufacturing economy doing? That'll be critical, especially in an election year. We'll also get on Tuesday U.S. trade numbers for goods and services. A lot of people pay attention to it. I don't. I don't think it tells you very much about the true state of the economy, but expect some headlines on that. And of course, there'll be impeachment. Imagine, we could have a war in the Middle East and our commander-in-chief is gonna be put on trial. Crazy, politically, it's gonna hurt the Democrats. Talking about the Democrats, a week from Tuesday, they're gonna have their last debate before the Iowa caucuses. In this battle for the Democratic Party nomination for president, there are actually two primaries taking place. One is what you might call the socialist primary between two principals, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Now, for the more moderate part of the party, you have another primary taking place. Obviously, the leader there is Joe Biden, but also you've got Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and perhaps merging, not in this debate, but in future ones, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York. Whoever wins those two primaries will go head-to-head to win the party's nomination. But again, two contests in one, the socialist side and the so-called moderate side. Keep your eye on that. The Iowa caucuses don't come for a few more weeks, not until February 3rd, but that's going to heat up big time. And now, my interview with the legendary Dr. Oz. My guest today is the legendary Mehmet Oz, known as Dr. Oz. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon, which means transplanting hearts and lungs, of which he's done more than 5,000. He still does surgeries once a week, usually on a Thursday. Dr. Oz, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. It's good to have you cornered in a room by myself. It's such a blessing to have you here. Thank you. You made my day. <laughs> a New York Times piece referred to Dr. Oz a little while ago as, quote, one of the most accomplished cardiothoracic surgeons of his generation. He's the author of a number of books. He's authored hundreds of professional papers. 
And he's also a man who's got several patents to his name, including one for aortic valve that can be implanted without highly invasive open-heart surgery, solution that preserves transplant organs. When you were doing your uh, residency, Dr. Oz, you uh, also won the, was the Blakemore Awards? I did the Blakemore Awards, which most listeners won't know much about, is the, uh, the research award at Columbia University. And as a resident, you strive to win that award because it demonstrates that you not only have uh, curiosity about advancing the field, but you have some proficiency in it. And I won that award several times, and I loved I think being it was four in times, wasn't it? I, I, I don't actually remember anymore. <laughs> but I, <laughs> there, there was a Blakemore Award, there was a Blakemore Prize, but I, I won the one at the end of the whole thing as well, which again was representative of the fact that I was supported by great folks because you don't just go into the lab as a resident and change the world. You have to be mentored by people who have a real passion for teaching you. And you mentioned the, uh, the replacement of valves, the Mitra clip, which is the, the, the original patent that I wrote. It came out actually of an idea that I was exposed to, but I was sent to a meeting in Bergamo, Italy. Now, I don't know if anyone uh, who's listening knows much about Bergamo, Italy. It's a spectacular town, Italian town, but in the Alps. Nobody wants to be in a meeting when they're in Bergamo, Italy. They want to be out playing in the streets, having a great time. So needless to say, when it was the last talk of the day, there wasn't much to do except talk to yourself because no one was going to be in the room. So I was the second to last speaker. I hung around for the last speaker and that changed my life because the last speaker, a guy named Octavio Alfieri, just a fantastic human being who uh, was, a, was a pioneering surgeon, had radically conceived of an operation that he started doing in Italy. And the Italians are great designers. They understand structure. The, the mitral valve is a unique structure because it allows, it's named after the Pope's hat the miter. It's shaped like that. But if, if that mitral valve leaks, you die of heart failure eventually. And it's still a major problem in this country. So he came up with this idea with one single stitch to fix the valve. And I remember getting on the plane on the way home thinking, my goodness, one stitch. So, so it occurred to me, if he could fix a valve with one stitch, maybe I could do it without stopping the heart, take it to the next level. Right, because it is like operating inside of a, of a car engine. If it's moving around, all those pistons and belts, it's hard to fix things. But one stitch, my God, I mean, I could do that. So I wrote a patent on the plane ride home. I still, you know, in pencil, so I could erase things I didn't like. And it was based on replace, uh, repairing a valve from the groin. And that is the foundation of the massive change that's occurred in heart surgery over the last couple of years. If that was a front page New York Times article, which I only mentioned because the New England Journal Article of Medicine, which is our primary journal uh, in, that covered the, the, this, this, uh, this advance, is not something most people have heard of. But when the New York Times puts it on, on its front page, I hope that rep is representative of how important an advance this was. It reduced the chance of dying from heart failure if you fixed your valve with this little clip uh, from the groin by 50%. And more importantly, it reduced the chance of dying by 50%. And I mention that because it's a good launching point in the problems we're having in healthcare in America. Not always does improving health have to be more expensive. If done correctly, improving health should reduce the cost of healthcare in this country. This clip is a good example of that. I'm conflicted, obviously. I'm biased because I invented the thing. But there's many other examples I could give when we, we use medicine correctly. But when used incorrectly, it is definitely much more expensive. In fact, it's why we spend so much in this country without getting appropriate value for our investment. We'll get to that because uh, we do spend uh, two to three times as much as other countries and uh, the outcomes don't uh, show the results of that extra expenditure. Uh, you're founder of Health Corp. Uh, tell us about that, which is Love of my inspiring. Life. 
HealthCore, we started uh, with my wife almost 20 years ago. It's a foundation that teaches teens about health. And we're across the country. We've changed the lives of a couple million children. Uh, and I call them children, but these teens are the future. They always will be. And they take our ideas that we share with them and they, they become activists in their community. But here's the basic concept. And his wife scalable and has been so popular. You take the the Peace Corps model. In fact, I, I spoke to Sergeant Shriver about this idea before he started it. Timmy Shriver, his son, has been very helpful. They run Special Olympics. Maria Shriver, they've all been supportive of this initiative. But Sergeant Shriver's basic idea was take energetic college grads, give them a, a, a few weeks of training, and then put them put them off in Botswana to build dams. Put them out into the field to help people do better. It's great. Uh, for this for our nation because we're volunteering our youth to go out change the world, but you're also harvesting the, the brilliant energy of young people to make a difference. Uh, that and they don't just have to sit in their hands and think about it; they can actually go out and do it. We took that same model, except those same college grads are not taught how to build dams; they're taught how to teach health to teens. And then we turn them loose in high schools around America with the permission of principals. And these young coordinators are, are like mentors, like big brothers and big sisters. And they're able to teach basic health information to high school students, but more importantly, they're available after class. It's the back of the, the classroom conversation that changes people's lives when they confide, teens especially, who are lost and confused and in trouble, confide issues to these coordinators and they get mentoring. And I bring that up because I'm on the President's Council for Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. And it is a, a real problem in America that we don't have enough coaches, literally don't have enough people in schools mentoring kids in physical activity. We also, of course, have a shortage of other specialties as well. But if teens don't get mentoring from their parents, someone's got to step in. They're the ones that are most at risk. So if you're captain of the football team, you have a mentor, the coach. If you're a great singer, you know, soprano, your theatrical uh, coach is going to be able to help you. But what if you're not great at a lot of things? What if you haven't found your place yet? Who's going to help you? That's where HealthCore steps in. And we love working with other foundations. So if anyone's listening is interested, come come on down. <laughs> There's always room in the barn. That's a, that's a great inspiration, HealthCore. And uh, you mentioned serving on the President's uh, Council of Sports and Fitness and Nutrition. And one of the things uh, maybe just make a comment on is that uh, one of the problems with school seems to be lack of recess. When I was growing up, you had recess. But now, oh, lawyers might sue if it kid gets hurt or something. Uh, what, what, is there any progress being made there to get kids more active? It's the opposite. We're moving in the wrong direction. And it's a tragedy that it's come about because of a lot of well-meaning people trying to help the system. But when you focus on book education, uh, science is a good example. I'm a scientist. I, I love, I'm happy when kids focus on science or English literature, which is also hugely valuable to getting through life. But whatever the theme is, that's great. But Historically, humans have always been active at those young years, and it helps a lot of young kids, teens, to be able to be physically active. They express themselves physically. They, it calms their mind. They can actually learn better and do better. That's why classically in a university education, you have to play sports because it was thought that it to help you think better, help you process better. When I went to high school, like you, we had recess. In fact, in my school, mandatory sports in every season. You had no choice. You had to play. You could pick whatever sport you wanted, but you had to play something. And it was a belief. It was a private school, but it was there was a belief that if you could walk and chew gum, you could play sports and study for the English test, then you could get through life more effectively. It forced you to organize yourself. And I felt strongly about that to all my children did the same, even though, was, even though it wasn't a rule anymore when they got to school. But I think when kids want to play sports and we don't let them, that's taking it every one step further. 
I don't, yeah, of course, maybe I don't want to force your kid to play sports if they don't want to. I understand. I mean, I might think it's an error, but that's my personal belief. But if I don't let your child play sports when they want to, I'm hurting your child. And there is no excuse in our nation for doing that. I think it's an overarching shift away from the importance of family and the importance of protecting young people in particular uh, that's led to a lot of the crises that we're facing now in America. You've made the point, by the way, on this subject in terms of uh, diet and uh, the crisis there, that one of the problems is we don't have sit-down meals the way we used to in the past. Humans bonded over food. You know, if you look at this, at the history of our species, so much of what we became was, was, occurred because we're able to deal with food differently. So there's a place in Southern Turkey called Gebekli Tepe. It means Potbelly Hill. Oldest human community with temples, period. It's three times older than the pyramids. Most of you have never heard of it. It just became a UNESCO site. I strongly encourage you. You can do a Bible tour through Southern Turkey. There are more ruins there than probably anywhere but Israel. And this is one of those places that's special. Now, you may know of it because um, there's a little town near it, Haran, which is where Abraham met Sarah. So it's in the Bible even. But thousands of years before Abraham met Sarah, humans in this place in Southern Anatolia were able to bond together and began capturing animals and domesticating them and actually taking wild wheat, einhorn wheat, and planting it and growing crops. Now, I grew up, and Steve, I don't know if you're in the same place I am, but I grew up being told that religion occurred because humans went from being hunter-gatherers, nomads, to farmers, agricultural. And because of that, we could do division of labor. And then some of the humans in the tribe had time to go think about God, and then they created religions. Philosophy. This is a completely erroneous belief. And it's only become evident because of this community. It's the opposite. What happened was these ancient humans, 10,000, 12,000 years ago, started building temples to probably to their ancestors, but they aspired to speak to the gods. And because they thought they could communicate with something bigger than them, they began to think that they could do more than just hunt and gather. And they began to therefore domesticate animals, plant crops, control the world around them because they could communicate with a higher uh, entity. And so religion and the family unit and the farming that led to uh, communal meals and the bonds that needed to occur because you, could you couldn't domesticate an animal by yourself. They'd have to work with dozens and dozens of people in a family working together, collaborating to, to trap one animal and then to keep the animal alive or plant crops. You needed a lot of folks working together. So they began to build their communities around meals. We know this from the arch architectural findings. And only because of that transition did we become an agricultural sufficient species. So it's not just a nice thing to have. If we didn't speak with each other at meals that we gathered together and collaborated to, to, to procure in order to grow the next generation, we wouldn't be where we are. And we throw away that heritage at the risk of our species. One of the things about uh, healthcare that you've uh, long uh, been an advocate of is recognizing that there's more than just hard science involved, the intangibles. And uh, you even talk about, uh, which has people scratching, but uh, you make the, the case for it, angels, whatever you call it. There's something spiritual happening when you're doing something. It's not just a, a applying tools. When you're fighting on the front lines and you're operating on people's hearts, and remember that pounding heart that's like a python in the chest, it's quivering and in, intimidating actually as a surgeon. You eventually get comfortable making peace, taming this beast. But when people go to heart surgery, it doesn't always work out well. 
And sometimes they have near-death experiences. And I've heard this from patients of mine who have survived procedures that I did not think they could have. And when they come back, they tell stories. And those stories do involve out-of-body experiences. Uh, they'll often have some angelic element. It's not an angel with white feathers, right. with a crown. Right. I, it's not, that's not how it looks. It's There was something there. Usually there's no speech. It's just a, a sense. I knew what the angel, this being, they don't call them angels, was thinking. And so there's probably a reason why humans have come up with this concept of angels. It actually um, it was it's personified the way we see it by Emanuel Swedenborg who was argued to be the last true great Renaissance man of his era. Um, he's, my wife is Swedenborg, it's a religion, it's a Protestant religion. Uh, Swedenborg was from Sweden and was a minister of mines, which was the most powerful position there. And he had these visions like Stockholm burning, even though he couldn't see Stockholm. Things that were validated by his peers at the time. Uh, ended up building this religion, which was, I mean, there are many um, uh, folks that you've heard of uh, that were Swedenborgian. Helen Keller was Swedenborgian. Uh, William Blake heavily involved. Uh, it turns out the Walden School of Philosophers, Thoreau and Emerson, were very influenced by Swedenborg. This basic concept that there is a spiritual world behind or beyond our natural existence. Uh, it's and there's no real hell. Hell is actually a place you want to go if you have those values, those desires. Most people don't like it when they're there very long because those aren't the values that make you happy. But if you want to live a good life, you want to look at people who have joyous existences and then copy the parts that make sense to you. And that was a big part of this, of this movement that humans had towards codifying it as religion. It doesn't have to be religion. You can probably do it in other ways, but religion was a pretty effective way of building a scaffolding for you to hang your values on, establish what a virtuous life represented. And that's why Nietzsche went mad when he realized that we had destroyed God. It wasn't religion, it was God we destroyed. And there was no longer- Jordan, a, Jordan Peterson talks about that. Well, I was introduced to a lot of these concepts. My, my wife is a, uh, went to theology school uh, for, for a while and her, her mother's a minister. So I've been hearing about this quite a bit, but Jordan Peterson articulates this better than any human being on the planet, I believe. And I know he's been controversial in the minds of some. I encourage anyone listening, whatever your political persuasions are, give this man's thoughts a chance, even if you don't. That says uh, something about you, that uh, you're willing to go in areas that others may fear to tread if you think there's truth to be found. One medicine where you don't tell the truth, people die. It's a interesting shift for me to move outside the hallowed halls of Columbia University, the ivory tower, where that's established and understood to a more public setting where oftentimes people don't tell the truth. It's not because they don't want to tell the truth. They're scared. They're, they're worried they'll be ostracized, which is a horrible thing to do to people and blocks them from feeling a part of community. That's how we would essentially kill people in the old days, right? Just ostracize them. Don't, don't talk to them. Pretend they don't exist. And then they, they, would, they wouldn't after a while. But when you hear people saying things that are not comfortable to hear, but there's wisdom there, at least I want to figure out what they mean. Because there's something that's taken away in the people like Jordan Peterson because they know what they're saying is dangerous for them. Why would they say it? They're saying it because something's burning inside that needs to come out and they don't. They just don't think they can live if they don't get that, that tr their truth out there. And Oprah was brilliant at this. Oprah, you know, everyone now says, oh, fantastic job, Oprah. I mean, I started on radio. I started my whole career on her show, but I used to host the Oprah radio show. 
And which is why I applaud what you're doing, Steve, because hosting people using only words is much more difficult than what I do on television because I can jump up and down and show pictures and I have musical interloads, lots of commercials. Uh, but when you're talking to people and you have to get, you have to be clear on what your, what your process is. And Oprah would take chances. She would have people come on who had not gotten a voice before, whether it was uh, young gay men at a time when HIV was ravaging the nation, talking about what it was like actually hosting a young man who had gotten HIV, not because he was gay, but because he got in the blood transfusion. These were people who were very controversial, but she knew that that was the passion in her heart that had to come forward. And after a while, people understand that and they'll re-embrace you. But in the time when you're actually doing it, eh, not so happy. Right. Well, of course, you've uh, done your television show now, uh, 11th season and over 1,800 episodes. You've done your homework. It, it, well, it's an amazing achievement. And uh, you talk about Oprah. She called you America's doctor. And she said, a cardiac surgeon who cared as much about transforming people's lives as he did about fixing their hearts. This is what he, she said about you. He saved countless lives of heart attack victims who, thanks to him, recognized their symptoms in time. About a cancer patient, who, mindful of your writings about medical mistakes, realized she still had the tumor her surgeon was supposed to have removed. So Oprah is a, a real fan. But tell us about the first show where she said, bring some organs and how you had to come up with an igloo cooler. And <laughs> how did you get through security with that? <laughs> well, Oprah, who is the fairest person I've ever met, a really remarkable individual, uh, was someone who was iconic in America. But if you're a heart surgeon, you're in the operating room all the time, if you're any good. And so you're a little bit naive about how the world is working. So I'd heard of Oprah, of course, but I didn't know a ton about uh, what, what goes down on her show, besides a few episodes that I'd seen. So when they invited me to come out to the program, uh, they said, bring some organs. I had just finished a show that I did with my wife, Lisa, called Second Opinion. It was a show on Discovery Channel. Yes. And Oprah had... Had, thanks to Gail King, agreed to come on for just a very short segment to talk about a struggle she was having with her weight. And we had the best time together. And I think part of it was because I wasn't trying to impress her, you know, I wasn't patronizing her. I was just curious about her, I, as really as a human being. And she's just a very honest person, so she just would tell, tell her truth. So uh, after that little itty bitty series aired, she invited me to come on her show. I'd never been on a show before. So I go out there and she says, bring an organ. So I how do you bring organs to Chicago from New York? You, you put them in an igloo cooler. They look relatively innocent. And this is just after, right, just right, right around 9-11. So I'm going through security thinking, what's going to happen here? They're going to see femur bones and skulls. They're going to think I'm Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hand wrote a letter from Oprah saying, hey, he's coming to my show. But you know, no one asked me. I went right through security. They're looking for bombs. They don't care about bones. And I, <laughs> and I get to the show. And I'll never forget, I had my nice, my nicest suit because I wanted to look good when I was going through airport security. But I didn't want to get formaldehyde on my suit. So I changed out of the suit, this is my naivete, changed out of my, my suit into a cotton scrubs that are only 14 bucks and they're the hospitals anyway. So I figured I won't get my suit dirty. I went on national television in scrubs. Mainly enhanced to, your credibility. Unwittingly. <laughs> unwittingly. And it became actually a brand. Because people knew if I was wearing my scrubs, they'd get to see organs. Like it's going to be a health show. Oprah, those shows did very, very well, obviously, because that's why we started my show five, six years later. But I did I mean, 60, 70 shows with Oprah 
and in that attire most of the time because of this foolish, naive belief that I didn't want to mess up my clothes, even if it was on national television. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your background, which has shaped your life, obviously, unusual background. Your father and mother came from Turkey. Your mother came from a well-to-do family, but your father was in extreme poverty, born in the Great Depression, the pit of the Great Depression, but came to this country with your mother. She a little bit reluctant, but uh, became a noted and very successful cardiothoracic surgeon. And uh, he was one of 11 children, five of whom died before they reached uh, adulthood. Which was common back then. And uh, so you grew up in Delaware. Uh, Tell us about uh, what happened when you were seven years old and you suddenly decided you were going to (laughs) become a physician. (laughs) You know, I was, uh, as a child, fairly sheltered in this immigrant family, like many immigrant families are. I had the values that my parents were establishing. We spoke a little bit of Turkish, a little bit of English, but, you know, I was still sort of in this hybrid never-never land. And my dad took me to Peterson's Ice Cream, which was a little ice cream shop in Wilmington, Delaware. It's still there. And I met Mr. Peterson years later, by the way. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know him, didn't know anything about the stop, except I loved the ice cream. By the way, that's still one of your weaknesses. Yes, it was horrible. I have, <laughs> my daughter helped start, uh, or is involved with Halo Top ice cream, which is a very popular ice cream brand. So she got it from me, I think. <laughs> but I get, despite the fact it's not a health food, it's, she, uh, but I, 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 I was just waiting in line and there was a kid in front of me, I was seven, and there was a 13, actually probably three years older than me, 10 year old kid, but seemed much larger than me because at that age, three years makes a yes. big difference. So he's waiting for his ice cream innocently. And my dad uh, comes after him and says, what are you going to be when you grow up? And the kid said, I don't know, I'm 10. I haven't thought about it yet. Gets his ice cream, moves out of the way. And my dad turns back to me, as I, even before I ordered my vanilla fudge. And he said, don't ever give me that answer. I don't care what you want to be, uh, but have a goal. And you can change your mind, but you need to have something you're aiming at. But listlessly going through life is never going to serve you well. And again, he's saying this to a seven-year-old, but it, it, it imprinted in me very much a desire to, to have a, a clear goal. Because I knew if I knew if, if I could aim at something, I'd probably hit it. Because that's one of my proficiencies. I'm not always good at aiming at the right thing. My wife will be the first to mention that um, because you know, but but the uh, but the ability to pick a goal is not the same as hitting the goal. You need to do both. And so he asked me what I wanted to be, and I said a doctor. And then I never changed my mind. It's amazing. Now your father, he pushed himself hard, but he pushed you hard. Tell us about when you'd come home doing well on a test. He didn't care what the score was. What question did he always <laughs> ask you? Everyone in my family knows this because it's the truth. Every time, Dad, I got ninety-four. Did anyone do better? It's the only question he'd ever ask. And if someone did better, it wasn't good enough. And that colored my entire life. In fact, I remember I was playing sports. I, I, I was playing a captain of the football team and our team won the conference championship and I was elected All-State, which I, I was the first kid in generations that had been All-State from my little school. My dad couldn't care less, didn't matter. He was, was completely focused on one issue, the test scores and whether I had been the best in the class. And everything else was, if I could do that and get the scores that he expected me to get, that was fine. I learned, I appreciated, I should say, years later, that he never really expected me to be the best always. But he figured that if he didn't set that expectation f- for me, that I wouldn't have that expectation for myself. And I 
do believe, because I, I did the same thing to my kids. I have to admit that publicly here <laughs> because I won't admit that privately. Uh, it does, you, you don't want to have a bigger vision for the people in your life than they do. And so if I have a bigger vision for my son, who's a, a junior at Harvard now, than he does, that's a problem. So I've got to either get him to see my vision. And there's a fine line between vision and hallucination, right? People, other people have to see your vision. It's not some make-believe fairy tale. He, but, and it doesn't have to be my vision. But his aspiration, what he seeks to do in life, should be at least as big in directionally as I think he can achieve. And he owes it to himself. And I owe it to him as his father to leave that belief in him. Your daughter, oldest daughter, uh, Daphne, by the way, also an author, going to have her show next year in 2020 on food. Yep. Uh, did you have the same thing with her? Did you? She got the brunt of it. She was the first, the oldest. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, we have four children. Uh, Daphne was born when I was in medical school. So she grew up. She was, still is my wife's best friend probably because they, they grew up together. My wife was 20 when we got married. And uh, Daphne has been uh, just an angel. She's got four grandchildren for, for children for us now. But she, uh, one of the highlights of my uh, my media career was sitting at the Emmy Awards a couple of years ago. And I've had a pretty good run, thankfully. You, to the, you've to won the, a number of awards with the, your show. Th thanks. And it's a committee that votes in, you know, the, of our brethren. It's a great honor because they're paying tribute to you and they're in the business. So they actually know a little bit more about this than the average person. So when they give you that award, it means a ton. So, and I'm very competitive about these things. So I'm sitting there hoping, keeping my fingers clasped, praying that I'm going to win award, the, uh, the Emmy. And they announced my daughter's name. Daphne beat me for the Emmy, <laughs> which was fantastic. Did she at least buy you dinner? We went <laughs> give to you free ice cream. We went to In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing about your father, relate how when you were named by Time Magazine as one of the most hundred influential people <laughs> of the world, his reaction. <laughs> it's a true story. You cannot make this up. So he's in Turkey. Then my parents moved back to Turkey uh, ultimately. Right. And so I said, Dad, get, you never believe this. I was Time Magazine, you know, one of the, um, the uh, whatever it is, hundred influential people in America. Because what number were you? <laughs> Are you kidding me, really? I mean, was it 100 divided by 300 million? I'm still doing okay. <laughs> Nothing, he does. But he was reflexive. He doesn't, he didn't even care that much about the answer. He, he heard, he wanted, he cared that I heard the question because it planted the seed that I could maybe have done better. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, you mentioned you went to school in Delaware. It was called Tower Hill. The reason I know is I have two daughters who went to St. Andrews, which is a Another rival of, a, of Tower Hill. Yep. Tower Hill, I should say, was uh, the DuPont family created the school in 1920 because they didn't think they had a school that was able to educate their children at the, at, in the way they wanted. Now, Tower Hill is a great school. So is St. Andrews. There's other schools in the, in the Delaware area. It's a wonderful uh, state. St. Andrews is another DuPont school. Another DuPont school. But it just gives, you know, when, when a great family, like a DuPont family, puts that kind of emphasis on education, you should remember that because they're, they're good at investing. They know exactly where to put their resources. And when they're going to invest in young people in school in particular, it's reminded to all of us that we should be doing that across the country in all of our, uh, especially municipal areas where kids often get forgotten. So you will go from Tower Hill to Harvard where you did well. Then you go to the University of Pennsylvania and simultaneously go for your MD and also an MBA. And even during that time, you managed to do a stint in the Turkish army. 
Well, <laughs> let me let me go through this a little. So, I, I went to college. Uh, I was just I I, I love great athlete by the way. Yeah, I played football and water polo, and I loved sports because I loved the body, and it got me even more enamored in medicine because I wanted to understand how the body worked. Because as an athlete, you see when your body's not functioning at full speed because you you know you don't perform. So I finished. I th- I'm going to go in the practice uh, medicine, and uh, I began to realize more and more that the practice of medicine required you to understand the money in medicine. Because if you can't fund the things you need to do, like that little clip I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the mitra clip, if you don't fund that work, if you don't create a, a, a company that can support it, protect the patents, uh, grow it, do the trials, these are expensive, then you're not gonna have business. Without a business, there's no clip, and then no one can put anything in. And one of the best things about America is that when we align our academic centers with research groups, you make incredible advances. I mean, Google came out of Stanford. I mean, there's, I can give an example. I mean, Bill Gates went to Harvard, dropped out, thankfully, in order to create Microsoft. I mean, there's many examples. Mark Zuckerberg uh, came, came out of Harvard as well. Uh, again, the concept was, was birthed in an academic center and then commercialized well. So our country does that really well. In medicine, it's a little bit rustier because of the process by which we allow things to be funded and also a general disconnect between many doctors and how money runs the system, which is why we get into some of the dilemmas we have with healthcare policy in this nation. And I'm just going to emphasize, I won't be in a soapbox, but everyone in politics is, and I'm having all the Democratic candidates on uh, this, this, uh, in this primary season, the, f- the conversations are always about how we're going to pay for healthcare. I haven't really had a thoughtful conversation with anybody about how we actually deliver care differently so it costs less. And it's not about triaging and not giving services to people who are older. Maybe are they really worth saving? It's not about death well, that's panels. That's important because most countries control health care costs by rationing. Exactly. They just don't get it. Yeah. Well, in Canada, which is a, a, a great country, which my, you know, I, I love going up there. I have tons of friends um, and my show airs there. And, but, but one of my, and I trained in, at Toronto for a while, but they, the government says you can do a thousand surgeries, whatever the number is. And when you get to a thousand, you're done. You don't operate in December because you've done all your operations. So it's a way of doing it. They, they, they're a much better system in other ways than us, but I wanted to understand the nitty gritty. So when I was in med school, I was at Penn and they inaugurated this program because the university was beginning to appreciate this as a problem at Wharton Business School, which is the same university. And they said, if you wanted to, you can go do both together. So I applied and was accepted. And uh, it was wonderful to be able to really appreciate how to read a balance sheet, understand marketing a little better, but most importantly, understand finance, how you pay for this stuff. Because if you can pay for it, you can grow big programs. And if you don't know how to pay for it, then you get, eventually you're gonna, it'll be the Dracula of medical technology. You'll suffocate the system because you're investing in ideas that really don't work well. And triage is a medical term, right? In a battle... You would triage the, victim, the injured individuals based on whether they were salvageable enough. Did you, if you don't have 50 pints of blood to give to someone who's bleeding out, you're better off saving 50 people who only need one pint than the one guy who needs 50 pints. But doctors in practice never triage. Only people in business triage. <laughs> they say, all right, that's not a good enough investment to make, even though it's a good idea, and it might even be valuable in some ways, it's too expensive for the for the value, we can get much better value, help those same people doing technique B, let's go do that instead. And we need more people who are knowledgeable in the system to give that advice. I'll give you one concrete example. The single best thing we can do in America to make healthcare affordable is to fight the battle in our homes, in our kitchen, living room, and bedroom. That's where you win health. You don't win it in the 
the, the academic centers of this nation or in hospitals. You have to wage it at home. And the backup system for that is a medical home, a doctor who you can actually call for a curbside consult or a little bit of advice or someone who knows you well enough to be able to tell you stuff without you having to run up a huge medical bill. We don't have that system in America. Just that by itself, just by itself, if we could, for example, manage obesity better, any healthcare system would work. We could pay for any, any Republican or Democrat proposed system. If we don't fix that issue, we can't afford any of them, period. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, but uh, we're in the holiday season, New Year's and all of that. New Year's resolutions. You have two rules. Share with us those rules because one of the great frustrations of life you get the high on New Year's Day. Yeah, I've done all the wrong things, but this year we're going to make it better. What, well, are the, what, what, what are the couple of things to keep in mind on make, making those resolutions? If I can give you one little bit of advice about, about medicine, when things have been around for thousands of years, there's something there. Right? There's, no re there's no reason it would still be in existence if it didn't work at all. Doesn't mean it works well, but it's something there. So New Year's resolutions are 2,000 years old. The Romans spoke about them. So there's something going on about New Year's resolution. So here's the data. First off, if you actually make a New Year's resolution, your chance of changing is dramatically greater than if you whimsically just say, I'm going to do something different this year. So literally make one, but you got to make it the right way. Uh, the first thing you got to do is make sure it's concrete, very specific. I'm going to lose 10 pounds by March the 1st, um, and I'm going to do it with these tactics. I'm going to intermittent fast. I'm going to eat for only eight hours a day as, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna learn about how to do it right so I don't mess it up, right? And then it has to be a reasonable goal. You can, and the only way to lose 50 pounds in a week, you know, is to take off a leg. So don't try to do something that's undoable. 10 pounds, two months, very doable. You can lose a pound or two pounds a week pretty comfortably. That gets you to your 10 pounds. If you're concrete in how you're gonna do it, let's just say on my show I'm doing something like the 2020 because it's the rule of 20 for 2020, and we've got you know a tactic for doing this. It's gimmicky and clever and. I think it's sort of fun, but, but it's memorable. It's memorable, right? But it's, you know, it's, it's pick one that you like. It doesn't have to be mine, but be very specific about it and then commit to a deadline. And here's the reality. Half of the New Year's resolutions are still being abided by even into summer. So they do work. People do follow them uh, if you put your heart into it. And it gets back to something you mentioned earlier about just 10, that even taking off 10 pounds, what it does to your heart, what it does to your uh, knees to your limbs, all the good things just 10 pounds can do. It's a shocking benefit. And as, as you start to head in the right direction, you already accrue the benefits biochemically, even before you've lost the 10 pounds. And it ranges from knees, as you point out, because your weight is seven times its impact on your knees when you walk up steps. So if you lose 10 pounds, it's like getting rid of 70 pounds of impact in your knees. Your cholesterol almost immediately begins to improve as does your blood sugar. Your blood pressure also begins to directly, directionally. And by by two to three months, we can measure a life expectancy difference from a lifestyle change. So your future is not your past and your genes are not your destiny. You have the ability to control much more than you ever imagined. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Oz. This is the first part of our conversation. The second part comes next week. And now my reads of the week, two pieces. The first one is entitled, the 20 Biggest Advances in Technology Over the Last 20 Years. It's written by Alexander Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N-D. You can find it on feed.org, F-E-E dot O-R-G, feed.org. That's the organization, Foundation for Economic Education. 
And he points out, despite all the turbulence and turmoil of this new century, humans reach new heights of prosperity, big things have happened and bigger things lie ahead. Among the inventions he talks about, obviously smartphones, we take them for granted, but they're virtual supercomputers right in your hand. If you'd said 20 years ago your grandmother could operate a supercomputer, you'd have gotten a very strange look. Now we take it for granted, as if it's the most common thing in the world. Among the other things that he cites, multi-use rockets, which is going to make space travel even more probable in the years ahead. Gene editing, which has great medical advanced possibilities, obviously can be misused, but being able to change the bad parts of our DNA, that's something we can all look forward to as we get older and older. The second piece, relating to the idea of resolutions, is from the New York Post. It's called, The New Year's Vow Everyone Should Make. Read at least 20 minutes a day. It's written by Anthony Marks, M-A-R-X. You can find it on nypost.com. And what he points out is studies have shown that reading just 20 minutes a day improves memory retention, improves social-emotional skills, critical thinking, and empathy. What's not to like? So carve out 20 minutes in your busy day, and you'll improve your mind, impress your friends, and have a better new year. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.